0: Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. For the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Good morning. It's good to be able to worship, and I'm glad that um, we have the ability to be here this morning together. Chris, if you wouldn't mind taking a look at the PowerPoint, it's not working for me. What does it mean to be spiritual? It's a question that we began looking at last Sunday morning, and it's a question that is... Very important for us to consider because, as you remember, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that to be spiritually minded is life and peace, but to be carnally minded is death. So, the question about spirituality is literally a question of life and death. To be spiritual means eternal life, to be carnal means eternal condemnation. But what does it mean to be spiritually minded? What does it mean to be spiritual? The problem with the question, or at least in trying to answer the question, is that humanity too often tries to answer it uh, on his own terms or in his own way. Let me give you just a couple of examples of some ways that people have tried to answer this question throughout the years. I remember in the late 90s or into the early 2000s, you may remember as well, there was a movement that caught fire in the United States and the movement was referred to as the emerging church or the emergent church movement. When I was in preaching school here from 07 to 09, it began to find its way even into the Lord's church and there were those who were sort of pushing the ideas of the emergent church. But the idea of emerging church was basically that of postmodernism. You see, the emerging church idea was that the church should change with the culture. So whatever the culture decides to do, whatever the culture decides to practice, the church should then change its practices and its thoughts in order to conform to what the culture was doing. And the purpose of that was that in the emerging mind, that would help the church to be more successful in trying to relate to and evangelize people of the world. But in this particular ideology, in this way of thinking, spirituality and really righteousness, right standing in the side of God was not defined by scripture or by reason or by proper deduction of what God says, but rather it was defined by experience. It was defined by emotion. It was very postmodern and so it was a rejection of absolutes and an embracing of the subjective. The emerging church movement sought to redefine what it means to be spiritual. Another one that we mentioned last week was the movement, you remember, of being spiritual but not religious. It was literally and still is the rejection of organized religion. And it's all about being spiritual in your own way, all by yourself in whatever way you see fit. Interestingly enough, if you just take a minute to Google it, spiritual but not religious, and you start reading the articles that come up, you'll notice that every one of the articles basically begins in the same way, and it's something like this. It's difficult to, f- to define being spiritual because it means so many different things to so many different people, and so therefore to put our finger right down on the pulse of spirituality is very difficult. That's basically the idea of the spiritual but not religious idea. Now, all that to say this, spirituality, at least at the base level, is a desire to have a closer relationship with God. I think most people would agree with that regardless of where they happen to stand. But if spirituality or being spiritual is an attempt to have a closer relationship with God, then wouldn't it make sense to allow God to define how it's done? See, this is the problem with humanity. This is the problem with human wisdom. Too often throughout our history, we have sought to define things as they relate to God in whatever way we think they need to be defined instead of allowing God to define them himself. This is a pride problem, really. It's a pride problem because in his pride, man chooses not to listen to what God has to say. We're always looking for new and better ways to do things, even, unfortunately, within the church of our Lord. It never fails. Every generation, there's a new generation of people. Every generation, there's a new generation. Duh. There's always a new generation of people, particularly preachers and writers, and their rallying cry is something like this. Look, we appreciate what the people of the past did, and our grandparents and great-grandparents, they did really well. But you know what? They just didn't make it all the way. And here are some areas in which they fell short. And so we're here to save the church and the world, and we want you to listen to us because we're going to show you a new and better way in which we can practice New Testament Christianity Just pay close attention to YouTube and websites and blogs and publications and things from churches of Christ, and about every 10 years, I promise that you will see that recycle over and over and over again. But here's the thing, it's not really a new problem, not a new problem at all. This morning, I want to direct your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You see, in this chapter, we, of course, are introduced to the foundational problems that existed in Corinth. In this chapter, in these two chapters, I should say, Paul will discuss division. They had a division problem. But he also, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1 tells us that they had a carnality problem. The reason that we see so many issues dealt with in 1 Corinthians is because the Christians there were carnal. But there's a third problem that shows up in chapters 1 and 2. In fact, this particular problem is referenced no less than 20 times from 1 Corinthians 117 through the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and that is a problem with wisdom. Read through this context and underline every time the word wisdom or wise shows up, and you'll find that no less than 20 times Paul deals with the subject of wisdom. Well, what kind of wisdom and why was it a problem that needed to be dealt with? Because as he will make clear, the church at Corinth was full of Christians who for whatever reason were allowing themselves to be shaped and to be fashioned by the wisdom and the ideology and the philosophies of their time and in their place. Corinth, by the time the Apostle Paul writes the letter, is a booming, booming, cosmopolitan area. Really, it mirrored, uh, to a large degree, our own city and our own country. By the time that, that Paul is working and writing, Corinth is uh, a, a, a very populous city full of people from all over different areas of the empire, They all brought with them their own idolatry. They all brought with them their own ideas. They all brought with them their own little pieces of culture. And so it's basically a cultural melting pot. But one thing that was consistent in Corinth among all the people from wherever they happened to come is that they all seemed to value the ancient art, the philosophers, and the rhetoric, and the public speaking, and all of the ideas of the day meant a lot to them. So when Paul deals with wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 2, it is fundamentally a contrast. The people in Corinth are exalting human wisdom and degrading God's wisdom. And Paul says, you've got that backwards. He exalts God's wisdom, which is Christ and him crucified, and he lowers to its proper place human wisdom and human philosophy. And he will do all of this at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, by making application to what it means to be spiritual. A spiritual person is one who listens to God and lets him define spirituality. A spiritual person is one who listens to God and lets him define what it means to be spiritual. Let's work our way through 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll look at some high points in these sections and then make application to spirituality when we get to the end of our lesson. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, we have the Apostle Paul proclaiming God's wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul is proclaiming God's wisdom. Listen to what he says. He says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the first two verses of this section, the Apostle Paul is bringing to their minds the time in which he spent with them preaching and teaching the gospel, and he is bringing to their attention what they know to be true, and that is the subject and even the method of his preaching. What does Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 and 2, was his emphasis while he spent time with them there? What was it that he focused on? What was his subject matter? The answer is Christ Jesus. He tells you in the first two verses, I didn't come to you with wisdom or excellence of speech declaring to you the testimony of God because I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. Now ask this question, why was that Paul's emphasis and why the importance for the Spirit to inspire him to mention it in these two verses? Go back and look at chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, the Apostle Paul describes the fact that man's wisdom is foolishness and God's wisdom is greater and wiser and stronger than man's. You see, he says that the preaching of the cross, verse 18, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are saved, it is the power of God. The problem in the ancient world with the cross is that it was an anathema to their minds, A cross was, the cross represented that which was so awful. It represented that which is so shameful that in civilized circles in the ancient Roman Empire, it was a subject that was not even discussed. And so the mere idea then of a Messiah, of a Savior, of a King, of the Son of God being crucified on the cross in a cruel and shameful and inhumane way was to the mind of those who, viewed themselves as being wise and as being intelligent in the ancient world, something that was unfathomable. And yet, what does the Apostle Paul say? The the message of the cross is the power of God. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, verse number 19. And he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than man. You see, God created a plan in which to save mankind that only God could have created because man looked at that plan, looked at that that scheme, and thought it to be foolish. Then, in the next section, verses 26 through 31, Paul emphasizes again that God has chosen that which man deems foolish so that man glorifies in God and not himself. He says in verse number 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame. Listen to this, to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. Why has he done all of this? Verse 29, so that no flesh should glorify in his presence. Verse number 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18 to 25 God had a plan to save humanity and that plan included Jesus dying on the cross to human mind to human wisdom that was foolishness but verse 26 to 31 Christ is the wisdom of God God created a plan that seems foolish in the eyes of men and the reason why is so that men couldn't glory in themselves and in their own intelligence and in their own wisdom but rather that they might glory in God and God alone and so Therefore, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, Christ is the wisdom of God. Therefore, chapter 2 and verse number 1, when I came to you, I proclaimed the wisdom of God, not man's wisdom, and the reason why I did it, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse number 2, or excuse me, and so therefore I pointed you to him, 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2. Now why? Look at verse 5. So that your faith would not be in the power, excuse me, in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The reason why Paul's proclamation to them was focused on Christ Jesus is so that their faith would be built upon God and not upon themselves, not upon their philosophers, not upon their books, not upon any thought of any man who ever lived. You see, the problem with human wisdom and innovation is that it creates a false faith. When we allow our thoughts, when we allow our faith, when we allow our conviction, our spirituality if you will to be based upon and to be defined by people, then those people become our faith. Our faith is built more on the purpose driven life instead of the word of life. And that's problematic. Because in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 19, the apostle Paul said that God destroys the wisdom of the wise, meaning the most intelligent person to human eyes that exists in this world is foolish as it relates to God. God makes even the strongest and even the most intellectual among us seem like they know nothing and like they are weak. Look at the concluding verse of each of these three sections. Chapter 1, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, verse 31, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Why is it important to glory in the Lord instead of in man? Verse 5, so that your faith, chapter 2, verse 5, should not be in the wisdom of men but rather in the wisdom of God. Trusting in the wisdom of man is a sure recipe for failure. If we allow humanity to to define what it means to serve and to be right with God, we will fail. Paul knew that. And that's why he reminds them in these first five verses, stop listening to people and listen to God. Next section, verse 6 through 12. In this section, the Apostle Paul will talk about the origin of God's wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6 to 12, the origin of God's wisdom. You see, it's not that the Apostle Paul hated wisdom, it's not that he is denigrating wisdom altogether in and of itself. In fact, far to the contrary. He will tell them in these next few verses that when he came to preach to them, he actually did preach wisdom, but it wasn't the kind of wisdom that they were thinking. It wasn't the kind of wisdom that they would hear in the marketplace or at school or wherever the case may be. But rather, this is the kind of wisdom that comes from God. Listen to what he says, verse 6. He says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Underline that section. We'll come back to it in a moment. We speak wisdom among those who are mature. But what kind of wisdom? Not the wisdom of this age. Nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Stop right there just for a moment. I want you to notice with me four things that the Apostle Paul says about the wisdom of God in these verses. He warns them about man's wisdom in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and then emphasizes in chapter 2, verse 6 and following, when we came, we proclaimed unto you wisdom, but it's God's wisdom. What does he say about God's wisdom? He says, number one, he describes it as a mystery. A mystery in the pages of God's Word literally refers to that which is hidden in God's mind until he chooses to reveal it. You can reference Romans uh, 16, verse 25 and 26, and also Colossians chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. The mystery that Paul proclaimed is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says he's proclaiming a mystery, and he says, number two, that that mystery has been hidden. It is hidden in the mind of God. He says, number three, that it is eternal that this wisdom that he proclaims is God's mystery hidden in his mind from eternity. It's always been there, but then he says, number four, it is for our benefit. It is for our glory. God ordained it before the ages, he says, verse 7, for our glory or for our purpose. So what Paul is saying is, look, God has wisdom. God has a plan. It's a mystery, which means it's been hidden in his mind from eternity, and we know it as he chooses to reveal it. It is for our benefit, and he says, look, look at the contrast that he makes in verse 8 and 9. It is inaccessible to worldly rulers. Make a line in your Bible back to chapter 1, verse 18 and following. Remember, he says in chapter 1, verse 18 and following, that the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness. And then in chapter 1, verse 30, he says that Christ is the wisdom of God. Humanity never would have come up with a plan that included the savior of the world and the king of the world dying on a cross, but God did. And so verse 8 and 9, none of the, none of the rulers of this age knew this. In other words, they couldn't look into the mind of God and see what was there. Nor could they come up with what God designed had they been able to do it then jesus would not have died verse 8 and verse number 9 that's what he says about god's wisdom it's a wisdom it's a plan that was for our benefit eternally hidden in the mind of god but god has now chosen to reveal it now here's the next question that the section will answer how did he reveal it was it through the philosophers was it through the academics was it through a best selling book Maybe a Facebook Live or a YouTube channel or a popular blog. What does he say? Look at verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For no man knows the things of man except the Spirit of man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but in what the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, when I came and preached to you, my preaching was not focused on man's thoughts and ideas, but rather it was focused on Christ. Why was it focused on Christ? Because Christ is the wisdom of God, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse number 30. And this wisdom, this wisdom of God that we proclaim to you, it came from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 through verse 9. And God gave it to us. How did God give it to us? First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 to 13. He gave it to us by His Spirit. You see, the role of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the Word of God. We talk sometimes about the difference between what's called general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what we see whenever we look out into the created order. We look at the universe and its design or our bodies and our, and, and our body's design. We, we can see the fingerprints of God in this world. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1. He said that the Gentiles were without excuse because the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen even from the foundation of the world. You see, we can look to the things that God has created and we can then reason to the existence of a creator. That's general revelation. But the sun and the moon and the stars and our bodies and the systems that compose our bodies cannot tell us a single thing about who God is. They can't tell us about God's attributes. They can't tell us about what God wants. They can't tell us about what we're to do in order to please Him. General revelation doesn't have the ability to do that, but special revelation does. Special revelation is the Spirit of God revealing to us the mind of God. Special revelation is the Spirit of God revealing to us the Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, remember the Bible says that all scripture is given by the inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Peter said no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. The literal meaning of that awkward translation is that Every word of Scripture that we read, not one single word originated within the minds of the men who wrote it. That's what that means. Not one one syllable of Scripture came from the mind of the men who wrote it. No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation, but holy men of God, Peter says, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Where did Scripture come from? It came from the Spirit of God. He revealed it. So, be careful, Paul says. Christ is the wisdom of God, chapter 1. So therefore, when I was with you, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, that's what I proclaimed. And the reason that I was able to proclaim it, chapter 2, verses 6 and following, is because it is the wisdom of God which God has chosen to reveal unto us through His Spirit. Now look at the last section and we'll start to see our application for the morning. Chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. The reception of God's wisdom. The reception of God's wisdom. Listen to what Paul says. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but in, in that which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. You probably notice that in these verses there are two men who are contrasted There is the natural man and there is the spiritual man. Who is the natural man that Paul describes? If we let the context explain it for us, this is the carnal man. This is the earthly man. This is the man who insists on human wisdom. This is the man who allows his thoughts and his philosophy of life, the things that he does and the things that he believes, to be dictated not by God, Not by the information and the wisdom that God has revealed through his spirit, but rather by the uh, academic, academic, academic ingenuity of men. That's the carnal man. That's the natural man. That's the fleshly man. He rejects the wisdom of God as revealed by the spirit because to him they are foolish because he sees things the way men see them. So then who would the spiritual man be? According to what Paul is saying contextually, the spiritual man is the man who embraces the wisdom of God. Listen to what he says, verse 13. He says, we are speaking not in words which man's wisdom teaches. We're speaking the words that the Holy Spirit teaches. The natural man is not going to receive those words that the Holy Spirit teaches. Why? Because his thinking is human. And so therefore they're foolishness to him. But the spiritual man, he judges all things. That means he has the ability to discern them. He thinks spiritually about the words that God has revealed through his spirit. The spiritual man is the one who embraces the wisdom of God. This is the one who listens to God and follows his directions. He discerns and he reasons about the wisdom that God has revealed. This is the contrast. So if you're following the line of thinking throughout the section, Paul says in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, God's wisdom is stronger and greater than man's wisdom, and God's wisdom is Christ dying on the cross. Chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, Jesus is the wisdom of God, and it is this plan, this manifestation, if you will, of the wisdom of God that God has chosen uh, to save man. He has chosen this thing which people see as foolish as the vehicle to demonstrate his righteousness and his wisdom and the way to be right with him. And so chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, when I was with you, that's what I was preaching to you. I wasn't preaching about philosophy. I wasn't telling you about all the latest fads and ideas. But rather, I was pointing you to Christ Jesus and to Christ Jesus only because I wanted your faith to be in God and not in me or anybody else. Chapter 2, verses 6 and following, what we preached, this is the wisdom of God that has been in his mind hidden from eternity, which he has now chosen to reveal, and it's for our benefit. And the way that he's revealing it is through his spirit, verses 10 and following. But here's the problem. There are two kinds of people in this world, Paul says. There are the kind of people, number one, that allow themselves to be, allow their thinking to be driven by man. They're fleshly. They're carnal. They're not spiritual. They're not going to listen to what God has to say. But then on the other hand, there are those who are spiritual and they want to hear what God has to say. They they embrace the wisdom of God. They will listen to him and follow his direction. Spirituality, brothers and sisters, is a life of devotion to God on his terms. Being a spiritual person, being a spiritually minded person is to be a person who lives for and who serves God not according to his own or any other man's wisdom but according to the wisdom of God. The problem is that man always wants to approach God on his terms. So in a practical way, what does that mean for you and for me? Well, it means that we have to be very careful Because we live in a world in which information of all kinds is literally a second away. We have access to any kind of information that we choose to access. And that includes religious information as well. There are all kinds of people that come on television on a regular basis that write best-selling books. People like Joel Osteen or Joyce Meyer or Max Lucado. And you could go to Mardell Christian Bookstore or any other bookstore throughout this country and the chances are you're going to find their books, you're going to find their products. People have all sorts of things to say about what it means to be spiritual and about what it means to be right with God. But listen, we have to be careful not to allow ourselves, or not to allow our thinking rather, to be defined and to be dictated by what people write and by what people say. Man's wisdom is sure to fail. If we're going to be spiritual and if we're going to be right with God, we have to listen to God. Even within the church, we have to be careful because as we mentioned earlier, there are always movements to sort of redefine. The new generation comes up and looks back at the old generation and says, look, you guys were good, but we're better. And you missed it in this point, and so we're going to pick up where you left off and we're going to try to correct your wrongs. There are always new innovations of some sort of thing. I remember when I was in preaching school and we were working through the emerging church movement that there was a a youth camp that I was involved with and one of the sessions I heard that there was a, I was told that there was a person who was teaching a Bible class about what it meant to meditate and how to meditate on God's word. And he was teaching the campers to sit in a lotus position because that to his mind was the new and best way in order to meditate on scripture. There are all sorts of movements all the time. There's the movement called Sabbathing, in which we're supposed to set aside certain parts of our life to think about uh, ourselves and whatnot. Several years ago, in fact, after I moved here, I read an article from a blog where the writer said that when we write periodicals and bulletin articles, we should stop writing about fundamentals of the faith because, after all, we have, as a church, moved way past all of that. So he literally would say, go back and find old issues of the gospel advocate if you need to show somebody an article about fundamentals and use those because we're wasting our time writing about them would be something like lowering the lights during the lord's supper or some sort of message that we find on a blog or a podcast or a youtube channel and listen these things are dangerous Even amongst brethren, even amongst churches of Christ, there are people who have these sorts of things, like the Radically Christian blog, for example. And if we are not careful, we will expose ourselves to information that will harm us in trying to be spiritual instead of help us in trying to be the people that God needs to be. If we're going to be spiritual, it's not going to happen by listening to the wisdom of men. It's going to happen by listening to God. So it really doesn't matter what a person says. It really doesn't matter how they present themselves on their Facebook page. To our eyes, they may seem like the most spiritually minded person that could have ever existed. And they want everyone to fall at their knees and be enamored with how spiritual they truly are. We'll talk about that more next week. But in reality, it doesn't matter how many Bible reading plans a person does on their iPhone app or how many hours of YouTube videos a person might present or how many incredibly written blogs they might dedicate themselves to. If they're not dedicated to listening to God instead of man, they're not spiritual. And we won't be spiritual by listening to them either. The truly spiritual person lets God define spirituality, not man. So now this morning, the question that we have to ask is, are we spiritual? Are we listening to God or are we listening to man? Are we spending all of our time studying God's word or are we spending all of our time reading articles and watching YouTube videos and trying to find the newest, latest, and greatest book and bestseller, who's driving our spirituality? What's driving our Bible knowledge? Is it God or is it somebody else? If you're not a Christian this morning, then the Lord's invitation is offered. And it may be that there's someone here who has a desire to become a Christian. Perhaps a desire to become a Christian, you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you're willing to repent of your sins and confess your faith and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You know, talking about people who are always trying to come up with some new way to enlighten the church, I read a blog article also a year or so ago that was basically making the argument that we shouldn't give the plan of salvation at the end of our sermons anymore this is a preacher in the Church of Christ. I read a blog article of his just the other day. He's all over Facebook and Twitter. People read his stuff all the time. And yet he says we shouldn't preach the plan of salvation because we get it wrong, and we've gotten it wrong all these years. We have to be careful. Maybe you are a Christian this morning, and you have something in your life that you'd like to get right. Can we pray for you? Can we encourage you? Can we help you in some way? I invite you to come forward and let your need be known while we stand